you know, while we're, we're getting everything set up here, Chives, do you mind, might, just to get a little more background, you mind if I ask just a couple of real quick questions? Of course, anything you like. Yeah, okay. definitely. So it's my understanding, I don't know, I don't know too much, but it's my understanding that Vivit kind of got into this whole sphere is editing like HSBC and PWC videos. At least I think that's right. Is is that am I accurate in ascertaining that? get a little more background you mind if i ask just a couple of real quick questions of course anything you like yeah okay. definitely so it's my understanding i don't know i don't know too much but it's my understanding that vivid kind of got into this whole sphere is editing like hsbc and pwc videos at least i think that's right is is that am i accurate in ascertaining that um I'm sorry. Honestly, I don't quite understand your question. What well, do you mean? I was wondering how he got into the the whole finance world, and maybe same for you, Chives. Just kind of the I know you, the 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 GameStop from two weeks ago. We talked about that was sort of the the fire um, that lit the that lit the you know the spark that lit the fire for you two. Um, kind of my goal with this interview. If, if it's not too, you know, unprudent to share it, as I, I just want to promise that you'll have a fundamental understanding of TAD3 and the material tangible choices that contributed to its final design. And so it would help just to understand a little more on the background um, with yourself and Vivek as to sort of how you got into the whole finance space, just so I can kind of better tailor the stories we'll go over in this podcast. Oh, well, sure. Well, happy to uh, to provide some background, and I think as an update, I, I've just been able, I believe, to uh, tweet out the various uh, uh, reference links I wanted to make sure to include. Uh, so I believe those are attached now to the space. For those paying attention, that's great. Uh, they'll be in the show notes for later. Now, as far as um, Bibik's background, boy, I wish he was here to comment himself, but uh, in a nutshell, I know that he... Um, you know, had been involved in some investments before, uh, had got involved with Tesla and watched that, uh, kind of grow, but it was really that the GameStop, uh, phenomenon that made him more aware of custody options and, um, you know, bless his heart. He just wants to get the information out there. And so, uh, he started to write independently a ton of online broker guides since he's from, um, over in Europe and it was difficult to seek self custody of American stock before, you know, for him just in a general sense. Um, and so once learning about DRS, he started to put a bunch of guides together and that's where, uh, where we kind of, kind of met from there, saw his content and, uh, and developed a great rapport. Uh, and that was kind of before, uh, the DRS GME website was ever launched, kind of getting familiar with each other just through online content. Um, as far as myself, I was, 
most involved with cryptocurrencies all the way back from like 2012, 2013. Very interested in that. Uh, a lot of local advocacy trying to get, um, small businesses in my college town to accept Bitcoin. Uh, way oh my back gosh. when. Um, yeah. Uh, so I was super, super into that, super into self custody from, from that time. Uh, personally quite anti bank and, um, so frustrated by the, three-year regime now of zero fractional reserve uh, required for banking, but that's a whole it's other topic. It's um, Oh, I know it, dude. I know it. And uh, and maybe, you know, who knows if we get into that. But um, let's see where from there. I mean, 2017, hard fork. I was a big block believer. And, uh, I mean, for anyone who was paying attention, you know that BCH uh, and the Satoshi's vision, not the coin, but the concept – were in some ways sidelined. Um, I became disenfranchised for a couple of years until GameStop reactivated me as an activist. Mm. So that's the that's the long and the short of it, you know. So I, uh, for anyone who didn't know that already about Vivek and I, that's a great little history uh, lesson, I suppose. And um, you know, John, I'd love to get your your history as well. But before I do, I just want to say, you know. Uh, a late welcome to Taking Stock this week. We're so excited to have on John Wooten here. Um, you know, John, I want to hear from you, but I'll set the stage first that, you know, you're a, a published author. You've got financial education videos online. And uh, perhaps most most thing I'm most interested in is that you're the founder of Block Transfer, an SEC-approved uh, transfer agent, which uses a public blockchain called Stellar to track issuer ledgers. And so... I think that's incredible. I want to hear all about that and uh, and how you came to just be aware of the different problems that um, the different problems with custody, uh, with the uh, opaqueness of the transparency system that would lead for you to be at the perfect crossroads of information and understanding to even conceptualize this solution in the first place. So uh, maybe I can uh, just please take it away from there. Give me your history. Certainly, Chives, and happy to tackle the latter part of that in just a moment. Uh, but I do want to just put an asterisk and clarify: SEC approval is a uh, it's a it's a pretty big phrase. And I just want to put out there sort of what our status is with everything. We've had nothing oh, but please. good yeah, feedback from the regulators. Oh, sorry, what was that? I was just saying. Uh, my apologies if I'm using the wrong term. So thank you. For taking the taking the extra no, time. No, you're fine. I thought the exact same thing when uh, when we first registered with the SEC as a transfer agent. They give us this notice of effectiveness. It's the same thing you get when you go public, and it's sort of like their rubber stamp seal of approval, right? And I thought I thought the exact same thing, but that's until I learned just a couple years ago that transfer agents. When they apply to be one with the SEC, it's just an automatic blanket approval, which was a huge surprise mm-hmm. to me. Uh, you, basically, anybody that can get a notary stamp can become a transfer. It's pretty interesting. Um, so, the, and the reason why is because it's a very, very outdated regulatory regime around transfer agents that's actively in cahoots right now in discussions on how it can be updated and modernized and better serve investors. 
But the crux of the problem is that the legacy role transfer agents played in our market, in our view, is minuscule compared to the impact and the very central role they'll play in the era of transfer agent depositories. Have it, did we talk about TADS yet? I think I saw something from you guys about that. Was That was last week, right, if I, my memory serves me right? Um, we, you know, I, we didn't have a show last week, um, but what I'd love to do is start from scratch. I mean, I don't mind rehashing ground at all. Okay. Well, there's a number of things I wanted to clarify, so I'll keep it brief, but... Um, you know, basically the short version is we're, we're actively, we're actively with the SEC as per the comment letter two weeks ago that we talked to you guys about. We're actively pursuing, um, really, really helping the SEC because the SEC just doesn't have enough funding. They don't have enough anything. They are really, really lacking in, in, in budget and in, in people and time and skill, you know, it's, it's, it's everything that you would expect with a government organization that has an unbelievable amount of dedicated public servants, but it's, you know, it's hard for them when industry can hire away all their great, their great regulators and, and all the amazing people that work there and put in so much time and effort when industry can just hire them away with higher salaries. Sometimes um, it, it, it's just they, they really need more resources. So we're, we're really trying to help them in terms of crafting the right set of regulations here that are going to protect investors, make the middle of the market more efficient to facilitate, you know, investors giving companies money. And then at the end of the day, it's obviously just along the three prong mission with the commission making sure that there are fair and orderly secondary markets. And secondary markets are really how we got into this space, my background, my history, running a small family fund. And I would love nothing more than to dive into that. But before, I just wanted to confirm. So I know when we were introing here, you talked about how you met Bibic and sort of met the whole team at YDRS. And I just wanted to clarify um, what exactly the story is with the, the volunteer team at the nonprofit specifically? Sure. Okay. Well, to clarify there first, we're not an active nonprofit organization uh, at this time. It's something that's been talked about, but really think of it more as a, a volunteer consortium of interested investors uh, or individuals from around the world, really. Uh Broadly speaking, the goal at YDRS is to be able to provide information and resources to help any individual who is seeking, um, you know, direct legal uh, title of their asset. And initially, currently, we're really focusing on the U.S. market uh, since that's what most people have uh, a lot of familiarity with. But eventually, we'd love to expand that to other markets um, you know, maybe the, the next one we have a lot of uh, knowledge on is uh, the chess system in Australia, but really that's down the line. Um, so we're trying to build a massive database of uh, information on 10,000 plus publicly traded companies, you know, such as their um, their transfer agents, you know, their uh, different policy procedures, uh, lots of different brokers, all sorts of things. And so that's the guiding principle. I have these resources available and try to just get more information out there into the space because there's so little um, 
penetration of this information in the broader uh, investing ecosystem or zeitgeist. And so we'd really like to see that uh, see that grow. Of course, direct and uh, direct registration is not necessarily for everyone. Uh, there are plenty of people who would prefer a, a more immediate and liquid access to a market, and that's completely understandable. I don't disparage those investors, but for those seeking to have, um, you know, a, a confirmed knowledge that they are, you know, when they cast a vote, it is counted, or they want to be able to more directly submit shareholder proposals or board communications, or simply just want to have the knowledge that they have a direct line with their company that they're supporting through their investment. All these are terrific reasons to direct register. I completely am with you, Chives. Exact same background here. U.S. market is just kind of the comfort for regulation-wise and understanding. And and I, I think, what do you think? I think that if we can get it right in the U.S., that we can set an international standard. Oh, without, a, without any doubt. I mean, uh, the way I see it, U.S. already sets the standard. Um, my perspective, I mean, I'm not sure if you were following a, uh, the currently ongoing UK, um, UK task force, which is trying to tackle, um, dematerialization in the UK's internal stock market. Long story short, if you're not, for those who weren't that are listening, uh, a couple of months ago, a task force got put together. Uh, they were trying to figure out a way to, um, curb all of the waste of resources that come with tracking down paper certificate owners, uh, and they came up with a variety of different solutions, but the one which the task force is most interested in implementing is a single centralized securities depository, which emulates the CD and co system that we have in America. Um, and they want to completely, if they go with that route as written, which we won't know for several months what they do, uh, comments are have comment windows already closed again, but uh, essentially, even the ability to hold directly like we have in America through the uh, through FAST and DRS, uh, DWAC, et cetera, would not be part of their plan systems. They're trying to go even further, long story short. And if we could adjust it so that DRS and self-custody, more, more importantly, were more common, uh, more commonly thought about, more commonly executed, then I think we would uh, be in a much better spot. Totally with you, Chives. We have been in contact with the task force and really more specifically on option four that was proposed, which was a complete revamp of the entire system. Yes. Oh, fantastic that you guys were reaching out there. I love that. And, yeah, option four, boy, off the top of my head, was that the one where they were talking about um, distributed ledger technology and they basically said it's too soon to call how, how helpful that will be? That's right. But we don't think it's too yep. soon, Chive. Uh, nor do I. Nor do I. I think I think it's plain to see the potential already, uh, despite it being a technology less than 15 years plain old. Plain to see is an, I I think personally, an understatement. I'll I'll tell you when I first learned about Ethereum in 2017, it was within a month that I formulated the goal and framework of what block transfer is building based on the idea of smart contracts. Brilliant. Okay, well, that that I want to hear yeah. about. But before, but I'm also curious, too. I mean, you mentioned that you were running a, a small family fund initially, and that's what uh, developed your 
familiarity with the the broader, uh, I guess I'll say traditional markets. I'm curious to hear about that yeah, too. Yeah, I mean that fund is what lets me do what I do today, uh, no doubt. And trading really is is the secret to being because at the end of the day, Chai's, we're a company. We're we're questioning the financial industry certainly, and we're built by investors for investors. So. As you know, I am really an investor at heart. I got into the whole market from the, you know, individual investor point of view. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there was uh, one investor in particular who has a, a great history trading named Ross Cameron. And he really is the inspiration that led me to, you know, I, I was working at Subway at the time and I mean, it was a great experience. I really incredible learned so much so many great social skills came you know you get from that i uh, would recommend wholeheartedly minimum wage work just when you're starting off um but after about half a year of work and they're like i said some of my coworkers were fed up with a particular manager that they quit and i would i would work open to close completely alone and that was or that was really challenging for me and that was the point where i learned that if i wanted to take my financial future into my own if I wanted any control over it, I had to kind of take it into my own hands. And so every moment I had outside of work in high school, I would just research, learn as much as I can about the stock markets. For some reason, I thought that was going to be the cool thing. And, you know, I started making some of my first investments and had some winners, had some losers. And that about after about four or five months, the school year ended and I, I turned to my two-week notice. I quit my job to trade stocks full-time. And as I mentioned, I made more in two weeks in a paper account, simulated trading than I made the entire year prior. And that was, that was really the spark that, that led me into, to financial markets. And, and that's why secondary trading is so, so, so important. Um, that was 2017 and, and I traded the whole summer and loved it. I mean, every moment of it, I, I can't express in words how much I enjoy trading. It really is kind of what, who I am at, at, at my heart. But uh, when the school year started coming up, um, all, all of a sudden I have this predicament, like how am I going to trade the opening bell in second period? <laughs> so it's a little bit of a problem. However, I went on a trip to my grandparents' house. Was, they live kind of far away. And on that trip, just the week before school started, that's when I learned about Ethereum and and kind of what all this Web3 crypto stuff was. And I loved it. I, I was able to trade crypto 24-7. So when school started, I just woke up at the dead of morning or the middle of the night to trade. And, and, and if, you know, just as an insider tip, as someone who's around a fund professionally, the middle of the dead of night Eastern time is like the time to trade crypto, Forex, all that stuff. Uh, because that's when nobody's trading it, at least from my perspective. I'm sure there's other reasons. That's when no one's trading it, and that's when there are the best opportunities I've found. Uh, and that's eventually what led me a number of years later to do what's called polyphasic Uberman. It's where you sleep 20 minutes every four hours, just take naps all day. You sleep two hours a day. Uh, and that's just that's something that I was able to do for about eight months because of how much I love trading and that really fueled that. The only thing that stopped me, Chives, is I got a girlfriend and she wanted me to sleep at night. So <laughs> as, as, as that goes. Wow. Well, I've heard of that sleep schedule. Never tried it myself. Yeah. Uh, fascinating that you were able to have good results, but I mean, at least from a traditional health perspective, 
So I'm glad things yeah, changed. It's probably not. It's not healthy. Okay, <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's really incredible. So when you uh, you mentioned earlier learning about ETH and uh, and the idea of smart contracting, I mean certainly they they brought that to the map. Um, as, you know, from my recollection as well, it blew my mind in the same way back at that time. Uh, so was it? I, now from there, I mean, you learned about smart contracting, which means you meant to have learned about uh, the peer-to-peer transactions on the distributed ledger. I mean, but you couldn't have possibly known what a transfer agent was already at that time, operating a, as an individual trader. Yeah, certainly. Um, that came more years later. At the end, after I published my investing handbook. I used those skills to launch a just a friends and family small hedge fund basic investing and and we were we were in a pretty wide range of markets we were trading everything from crypto to oil futures you know it, it was it was a pretty it's pretty much every and everything in between and and you know that's when I started trading options and all the derivatives that you would expect um, and that eventually led to the trade that kind of funded most of our efforts here, which was a pretty exotic derivative trade shorting Bitcoin. But that that, that kind of time frame is when I, I started learning about market infrastructure, which is kind of the, the question at hand here when we talk about the whole DRS movement. The, the, the real neck breaker here is how unbelievably outdated our American security settlement and trading market infrastructure is. Uh, do you think that's a fair statement, Chives? <laughs> yes, uh, I would I would say so. I, not only would I think that just about all of our listeners would agree, but I I think that this is the meat and potatoes that they're interested to hear a conversation about. Yeah. You see, I, I'm, I always believed, I really, really, and I talk about the SEC a lot in my investing handbook because they do a really great job protecting investors and facilitating, you know, given how freaking, how, how things came to be in our market today and the, the, the immense history of intermediation and all these banks, brokers, custodians, all these middlemen that take a big cut of your retirement. I have nothing but respect uh, for for how they're able to very very well balance the the needs of investors, the needs of companies, the needs of these legacy middlemen that have sort of the keys to our capital market, and you know you've got to satisfy them because they control everything. And uh, from uh, there's so much we could talk about there, but I did, the whole point is that I do, do have really great respect for the SEC, and they do a great job. Um. Oh Jesus! Well, I'm sorry. What were we talking about, Chives? <laughs> oh. Well, I guess what I first say, you know, just to follow up there is they, they do a great job, but with limited resources and working in a space where they don't even have direct jurisdiction over some of the largest self-regulating organizations in the space. So it's a difficult problem, and I'm sympathetic to a lot of the frustration and ire which the SEC receive online, but it's important to paint the the context picture of the, the bizarre nature of that ecosystem. So, you know, I just wanted to get that out there as a, as more of a sympathy to the work that they do. Uh, although, you know, certainly we would love to see more strict regulation. This has been an incredible past two years for proposals and for uh, forward progress, or at least the appearance of it. 
I'm a hundred percent with you, Chives. And I think you hit the crux of the problem here with the self-regulatory organizations. And I get when, when SROs were originated decades ago, that there were very, very limited SEC resources, even more than today. Okay. And they just didn't have the wherewithal to, to effectively regulate. You know, these guys were basically building out like internet stock trading from scratch and they were doing it based off decades, if not centuries of backstory and experience. And I understand kind of how the, the, the end, at the end of the day, Chives, at the heart of the SRO problem, I think the manifestation of of all these conflicting you know, interests between brokers and the banks and the, and the investment advisors and everyone that just wants to profit off the backs of everyday investors, the crux of it comes down to the DTCC, which is, as you know, a private monopoly owned by the banks, brokers, and the Rothschilds. That is the problem that leads all these hidden fees to not only start to happen, but then also creates the problem of the failures to deliver and the naked shorting. And now all of a sudden you can't trust that the stock in your portfolio is actually yours. The DTCC is the problem. The DTCC will always be the problem. The DTCC must be replaced. What do you think on that, Chives? I love it. I love it. Uh, that is pretty much exactly where I'm at too. Uh, and again, where I think a lot of the people who volunteer their time towards, um, ownership advocacy are th- where they're thinking as well. I mean, for, you know, for anyone who somehow isn't aware, I mean, just a couple of fun facts about the DTC. You know, this was their 50 year anniversary this year. Um, for their first, you know, several decades, they would release a, uh, yearly report noting how many shares in the market they kept inside of their centralized vaults, uh, which they, you know, which they doled out to their memberships. Uh, last time they updated that figure was 1998, where apparently they had 83% of all issued stock, uh, in their custody. And, um, personally, I, I bet you that number just kept going up. Maybe it's close to 99% now. Who knows? Uh, we certainly can't be sure, but, uh, at the end of the day, Anyone out there investing with a broker, they are, you know, when you buy a stock through your brokerage account, you're being provided not a share, but a share entitlement, uh, that you have the right to the profit and loss of that underlying asset, but don't have ownership of the asset itself, which, uh, for a variety of different shareholder democracy or, uh, tax implications can be very important. And, uh, and this is just a, a wholly unknown just about problem. I mean, we're taught we're, we're in a niche, uh, at this point still discussing this issue, um, which I, I hope one day to change. I think you guys put it really well in your extremely informative information packet on page 11, where you say that direct registration is the only way to give investors complete assurance that the shares they purchased are not actively being used by intermediaries to negatively impact their value. Uh, 
And isn't it insane that <laughs> that that could actively be happening all the time um, from these middlemen who have their own profit motive, and uh, and there is practically zero way that any uh, any regular you know average Joe investor would ever be aware. I mean, they you know there's this uh, predisposition to plug money away in a 401k, which again is only an in- invention a couple of decades old. But the entire time that your uh, capital is squirreled away in this place, uh, middlemen could be actively manipulating and uh, gaining their own uh, gaining their own money in portfolios, uh, growing that because they know what your static asset investment is. Uh, just uh, it's it's despicable, uh, truly, and. Um, you know, I'll, I'll bring a quote back to you. You know, I watched a uh, a presentation you did for a uh, InVenture prize where, uh, and this this was pretty incredible to me, where you described the typical markets as requiring an average of 11 middlemen per trade, with an average of four to seven employees processing any trade, and uh, pointed out succinctly that at the end of the day, all those people have to be paid. And uh, and where where is that coming from? Uh, where's that coming from? <laughs> exactly. You you go from the investor to their broker to the routing broker to this the wholesaler they pick, and then the wholesaler sends it to these. They've got these off exchange things. They've got these special orders where you can match individually, but not on the exchange. You got the stock exchanges. Then you have this whole settlement system they all connect to, and you have to report all that to this other private company that well i guess it's public but you know that 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 sells all the trading data and then there's the access fees for all these middlemen and they pay to have the special privileges to make trades that you can't make and then and then obviously there's the whole the whole freaking nightmare of the actual stocks changing hands and then it goes to a separate bank and the separate bank moves to all the broker banks and the broker banks have to daily net settle. And then, and then, so you have this super slow cycle that's not accurate, that doesn't give you the stock and that imposes undue restrictions on how, what, when you can trade. Let me tell you a story, Chai's. When I was day trading, for some reason, I decided Robinhood would be the would be a good idea. This was back when brokers charged commissions, and I thought, oh, I'll do it through them. And also, I, I had like seven brokerage accounts so that I could get past the PDT rule. I do three trades on one broker, then I do three trades on the next broker. I could go all day on the PDT rule. Um, and I made this trade with them, and. I try to get out of the trade after about 20 minutes. It was, and, and they don't let me sell. <laughs> I, I have this documented, okay? It takes them like, there's some tech glitch or some shit on their side. And it takes it, until the next day for them to, to let me get out of the position. And, and of course I'm day trading these speculative stocks that tank overnight if you don't get out of it by the end of the day. And I lose like 30% just by the next morning um, because they their systems just break. Uh, and so that's why I think it's really important that we get the infrastructure fixed here and we make the secondary markets 
work stellar for investors so that investors have more confidence not only to trade and know that there is liquidity when they need to tra- to to do anything you know put you know liquidate the, for the savings goal they've had or or take some money out of their retirement portfolio but also just more generally to put their capital in the hands of innovative companies that can grow it at rates only found here in the greatest capital market on this planet. What do you think about that, Charles? Well, I want to I want to speak to to one thing based on your story there uh, first, and then and then I think we can definitely that's a great segue to move forward. Uh, first thing I'll mention, I mean, Robinhood, you know, uh, they're certainly I think no friend to our demographic. Uh, what I will say about you know, them, that story, and uh, that whole uh, part of the ecosystem is that uh, who's to say what type of tech glitch happened? Because unfortunately, you know, Robinhood has been fined for internalization before, and they have a incentive to uh, create as much of a difference in price between the opening of the settlement window and the closing of the settlement window when it comes to settling your trade. Not saying anything specifically happened in this instance, just saying that there exists a perverse incentive process to try to uh, capitalize on uh, that kind of uh, of moment. So, some you know something for listeners to think about. Uh, and as far as moving forward from that, I think that the uh, and I'm sure you, I know you're in agreement concerning what you've accomplished, but the distributed ledger technology, which can allow for not only swift settlement but transparent settlement. And uh, the knowledge that all participants know already that the, uh, you know, the asset is there, the wallets are plain to see, you know, I think that ultimately is the ideal solution to so many of these issues, both in terms of the abuse of middlemen and the just, uh, frankly, uh, weak uh, settlement regime that we have, even without, you know, uh, nefarious actors, it still just is inefficient, uh, you know. So at the end of the day, this uh, kind of new technology is going to be the best route forward, which brings me to perhaps we can start to start to talk about this kind of solution. I mean, uh, so the Stellar coin that you have or maybe the, the patent that you guys have put together, those are some things I'd love to hear more about And because I, I, they're – what makes this the ideal solution when it comes to uh, trying to bring that settlement regime to heal and to make it reasonable? Why are these out of the thousands and thousands of possible coins and tokens? What makes this the proper route? Yeah. Uh, before we dive into that, Chives, there are a number of things um, that that there isn't a whole lot of public information on. Just because of the nature of, you know, these middlemen have, like you mentioned, perverse incentives to keep things secret, maintain the status quo. I mean, I don't, I don't have the exact numbers, but these guys make billions and billions of dollars off of fees that you see or you don't see, uh, or interest that you're not getting on shares lended out. And I mean, the, the, you can look at Trim Bath, for example. And this example of, you know, a vast majority of a lot of the broker's income uh, or all these middlemen's profits, uh, not only is it from, like you mentioned, internalization, which I just can't fucking believe exists in today's market, um, but 
and not and you know not just the trading fees or that some do or, or the advising fees that they charge and sure okay fine but but just the securities lending alone and the interest income off of being the only person in the room that can tell you that you have shares in a company that they located for you to borrow even though they don't actually locate the shares in a very large number of documented instances on that note, I wanted to ask, am I right that, that YDRS is the one behind computershare.net? We do currently maintain that website. Okay. And I, I want to talk just a little bit about the shares. I know the only real case study we have here are some of the, uh, I mean, kind of the main ones, GameStop. And I just wanted to dive into that. If you're, are you familiar kind of with the GameStop numbers for book entry versus held in street name? I, I'm sure that I can have a pretty thorough discussion yeah. about it. What exactly do you have in well, mind? So on the site, we kind of, and, and on the, you know, it's not just a site. Obviously you've got these public statements that are being, you know, held to authenticity by reporting to the Securities and Exchange Commission. You've got sort of this percent of shares held by brokers versus held on the books of the company. And by my recollection, let me, you know, let me know if this doesn't sound right to you, but it, it seems that there's only a small number, there's a minority of shares left available to brokerage investors versus investors that actually hold it in the DRS, in the, in, you know, they actually own the stock in their name. And it's a true share in the company. Is that, is that sound about right? Am I on the right path here with that? Well, certainly in terms of uh, legitimate shares that are out in the market, the trading float has certainly gotten smaller uh, and smaller in a broad sense over the last couple of years. And uh, for just for, uh, for you or for those who might not be aware, the co- information that's available on computershare.net is provided by a Bloomberg terminal. That's where we're getting the figures oh, okay. for, um, you know, institutions and uh, ETFs, et cetera, the, the more broad strokes information. So, uh, that information comes from Bloomberg and then the, uh, direct registered, uh, total that is held by investors on the issuer ledger directly. That's coming from GameStop's, uh, quarterly report, most recently released a week ago today. So just, just for some more background for those who might need it. Okay. Uh, well, I'm not going to harp too much on this, but it is a point I wanted to make. And there are, are so many examples that you've documented a, a number on your website. And there are, are just so many. There are whole books written. I think you mentioned recently the CMKM fiasco. And there's so many perverse incentives for, for all this to exist where you can have brokers that just, you know, spawn up shares out of nowhere and all of a sudden more shares exist according to vote reports in, you know, more than two thirds of annual meetings recently by a survey on file with the SEC. And I, I, I want you to listen very carefully, Chives. I'm going to choose every word with precision. I realize you, you may not fully understand what I'm going to say. And I know that by me saying that, you're going to want to prove me wrong. And 
understand it even more, and certainly you're probably one of the best people in a position to do that. Um, but I, I'm, I'm worried uh, because you've got these examples, one being the privatization of Dole Foods, where in brevity, the company goes private and the DRS investors get paid. No problem there. They get their check in the mail. Check in the mail. Jesus. Let's talk about that. They get their check in the mail and fine. You know, sure. But the, the brokerage investors, the ones that hold it in street name through the DTCC, chives, one third of them didn't get paid. And that was, that was over a decade ago. And only recently have the courts caught up with it in a class action lawsuit and said that they, that there's nothing the company can do and the investors have to sue the brokers themselves. But of course the brokers have this legal immunity. Well, you know, and the, the parties responsible have this legal immunity because of the self-regulatory organization regime and there's nothing the investors can do. And so I believe very soon in the future, there's going to be a rush to the door. And when, when I say that, I mean, if you think about an emergency, there's a fire in a movie theater, something like that. Very you know, historically commonplace. Are, are you familiar with a crowd crush chives? <laughs> yes. Uh, familiar with the concept, familiar with dull foods too. I, I worry that we might see something like that. If there isn't mm-hmm. enough, if, if there isn't quality infrastructure, if there's not a stellar system in place to really make direct the DRS, and I want to clarify a number of things too on the DRS, just based on what I've heard on the podcast, and um, and even even with what you mentioned, um, with because this information, like I said, it's it's very difficult to find, and a lot of what I'm going to share with you, we learned through interviewing half a hundred public American CFOs. It's it's just it's just not public which is because these guys make so much money and they control the, they control, I mean, you, you talk to their lobbyists, they freaking control the information. Um, so you mentioned DWAC at the start of this episode, and I just wanted to clarify that DWAC is this thing that's invented by the DTCC. It's kind of a name to make something sound really complicated that's not complicated. Uh, it's the same thing as DRS. Sure, Dr. T. Trimbath um, proposed the naming and really designed and built a lot of really amazing infrastructure at the DTCC around it. But I just want to clarify, like, just so we're all on the same page, DRS is just a code name for book entry stock held in your own name on the actual corporate stock ledger for whatever you invest in, okay? it's, it's And it's a great acronym, and it works great, and it clarifies the point. But I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here that there are two types of stock okay there's real stock in drs on the company's books and there are the entitlements that you mentioned which we are learning more and more are not true shares in a company so sorry don't forget about certificates as well certificates Certificates on paper basically like drs but on paper (laughs) just to throw that out there but otherwise, yes, that's a great clarification. Well, let's to make. dive into that, Chives. Okay, because because so there are you know are you familiar with bearer certificates? 
Not as much as I am some of the other things we've talked about. Okay, so back in ye olden days, when there were the first companies to sell stock, the way it would work is the certificates were the shares in the company. Like, the actual physical piece of paper was the share in the company. And that's why when the DTC started up, they focused so much on physical security. Because if you stole that certificate, it was like, here's an example. I heard of a story on the Smarter Markets podcast of a nowadays he's he's certainly an established futures and commodities dealer and trader and all that but he was a teenager at the time and the new york stock exchange instituted a program over the summer where kind of routine clerical accounting work was done by children so they recruited kids. His dad recruited him and some other friends to go work over the summer there. And they, he specifically worked on settling futures contracts and specifically the warehouse receipts. So after the contract ends, you get a little slip of paper. And that slip of paper was a bearer certificate. Like the person who owns, who's holding this slip of paper can go to the warehouse three blocks down the street, and if you give it to them, that slip of paper, for instance, he was dealing with silver, uh, you know, precious metals. So he could walk in one day with that slip of paper and walk out with $8 million worth of silver, get in his mom's car, drive to Canada. And that works out really well as long as they only issue as many bearer certificates as they have silver to provide, right? Yeah. Um, so, all, oh, yeah, <laughs> bearer certificates are illegal in all modern governments except for the only chain of islands left on the planet that has them legal, and that's kind of where all the crypto brokers are registered. Uh, and that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother story. But the, the problem with bearer certificates is obviously the security risks. Uh, for instance, my dad led a team at the time was Wachovia that issued variable rate demand bonds for the DTC. It's about 10 or 15 million dollars at the time. It was about two decades ago. And it all went to building this unbelievably secure building. My dad described to me the security measures that went into this. You basically, he said, had to give blood just to get in the building. Uh, there was so much, I mean, things like doors, cameras, guards everywhere. It was like going into a prison. They, it, just to walk in, just to get past security, you had to show two forms of ID. You have to be bonded to a bank, this whole process there. And they'd like check your social security number. It was crazy. That's sort of the, the level of physical security that, that is obviously inefficient and obviously introduces very expensive frictionful processes. Uh, and so thankfully, I think you mentioned in another episode that, 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 that these guys had good intentions, okay? They started out doing good things, bringing our markets to the electronic age. And unfortunately, this perverse incentive they, they have now to make billions of dollars for their brokerage shareholders 
has led them to, you know, it's like people say the fox controlling the hen house is kind of common in this niche that, you know, these guys who make billions and billions and billions of dollars off of, for instance, the faulty securities lending regime in place, they're the ones that control the faulty securities lending regime in place. And, and it's just time that we update our markets because just as kids handling the warehouse receipts for, of trillions of dollars of securities is a problem, so too are for-profit public companies controlling the means of which they have to make profit from their only real customers, which are, of course, you and I. Yeah, and... They, the monopoly to which they've been able to develop over these 50 years has, is not just a monopoly that's sort of, you know, acknowledged but almost unspoken, like, uh, Google and Amazon when it comes to web hosting. Uh, the DTCC have managed to create something which operates almost entirely outside of the public eye and the pub, you know, the public eye are as well, which, you know, is, is incredible. I, I want to, you know, wrap that back into the anecdote about Dole Foods because it's, I'm sure that all of the investors who held through a, a broker and were holding entitlements certainly felt like they were entitled to the, uh, to the uh, outcome of, uh, of that payout. But unfortunately, they were not actual owners of the stock and the judge found, you know, that they did not ultimately, uh, you know, beneficial owners did not ultimately deserve to receive directly uh, that payout. And thinking about it, I mean, that, that makes good sense. The trouble becomes when these, um, when these intermediaries, such as these brokers, choose to write out more entitlements than they really should. I mean, it's similar to, we mentioned, I think, in the first few minutes, the zero fractional reserve requirement for banking. Brokers operate under a very similar policy where, you know, they are freely able to write as many entitlements as they might want to, it seems. It, ultimately, the only thing that's stopping them is the threat of insolvency, worries about, you know, not being able to pay those things out. But between long-term investors, retirement vehicles, and of course, internalization, these risks are not as perhaps apparent as they really should be, considering the damage that uh, liquidity injection and dilution can have not only on the investments of individuals, but on the long-term prospects of public companies. So it's a, it's a major problem. And, uh, and certainly, certainly, uh, direct registration and, uh, and the public ledger system like available through distributed, uh, distributed blockchain seem like a really terrific solution to try to curb some of these massive, massive issues. And I feel like we could, we could probably just talk around, uh, these different, well, these different, I mean, I don't even know what to call them. Uh, I'd say monolithic issues, but there are, seems like dozens of them. So that's not it, but really there are, there are quite a few problems and we could, we could go on and on about that. That much is clear. I think not the truth. So what I really want to do, I think, is is because uh, I think it's been a great introductory, an hour already oh, wow. almost. Can you believe it? Um, but it's been terrific talking in broad about all this with you, and I I want to kind of try to drill down a bit into 
what you're doing, how you have entered the market space, um, and where it's going from here, what you want to do, uh, that, that kind of idea. If you're, if you're fine with trying to move into that, uh, that space. Yeah. I mean, we first obviously saw the problems from the investor's point of view and the past, I, I don't know, the past number of years has really been an eye opener for us from the point of view of actual companies and specifically it's generally the CFO dealing with this. And they are livid. They, I just, this morning got off the phone with my uncle. He's the CFO of an $800 million company. And he, he's, I, I mean, these guys hate the system. It's not working for them. Briefly, you know, imagine every time you want to sell stock, you have to go to some dealer who, who controls the keys to the market and pay them three to eight percent of however much money you raise. I, 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 I imagine that every time you want to compensate an employee with with shares and and tie their futures with the company they're working for, you know, give them the interests of the investors they represent as an executive, for example. Imagine every time you have to do that, you want to do that, you have to go not through the transfer agent. You can't just give these guys stock. You got to go through lawyers. You got to go through brokers. You got to go through all the middlemen. The trading that you see on, for example, a direct share purchase plan is a web of, of, it, it, it is the Alice in Wonderland where there is this front that you see where it's like, oh, my trade got filled. Whoopee. But behind that curtain, it's 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 this convoluted, outdated. It looks like a Bloomberg terminal system where the, all these manual systems connect brokers to exchanges to market makers, and you're not actually. You would think you could just. You would think that if I wanted to trade. With chives, I could just trade with chives. But unless I'm a billion hmm. dollar brokerage, that's not the case. Uh, it, it, and so there's, there's so many things that are wrong. It, and, and you guys are really, you know, exposing that to, to the world. And I think that if we can just fix these problems, we can drastically streamline modern capitalism. Trimbath, for example, talks about some of her early work moving Russia from a communist system to one based on what I think we can all agree is the greatest way to collect social intelligence and and really unify what 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 actions are important uh that being capitalism and you know the growth it enables um and and i think that we could all really enter a new era of international economic growth through a more unified global capitalism system where investors and companies can directly connect with one another without perverse profit incentives from middlemen 
Because at the end of the day, Chives, there are billions of people on this planet without access to our most developed liquid and advanced capital market that turn to subpar solutions. I respectfully submit subpar solutions in a very large number of developing nations, for instance, that just don't give individuals the ability to build real savings and retirements. They they can't invest, okay? For them, a, a new metal roof on their house for a lot of these individuals is investing. And that's not how you build generational wealth. And that's and the businesses in those environments, the innovative entrepreneurs, the unbelievable. You brought up Stellar. There are so many incredible projects on Stellar that have sadly small chances of seeing the light of real market traction. Because they just don't have reliable, equitable access to capital. And if we could just make it easier. I mean, I started my first blockchain company after the whole, after I was trading crypto in 2017. The long and short of it is I lost about $100,000 through some bad decisions I made. And I started a, a blockchain. The, the idea was that uh, internet newspapers, you know, ad blockers kind of mess up their money revenues, right? So you could, you could show pop up and you could like crypto mine in your browser and you could support them that way, you know, in a reasonable and safe way. Um, and that, that was a startup I worked on for quite a number of years, but it, it really never got traction. And because, you know, I had learned some of the things I learned in college and through, uh, through trial and error um, that that have really helped me build, launch, and ideally scale this, you know, block transfer. And I don't even know if the technology behind it would work today. Uh, it, it's, it, that's a whole nother story. But that, that business went nowhere. And it went nowhere because we didn't have capital. Okay. I was just a kid. I didn't have any money. And, 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 I had my family tied up in my fund, so I, you know, they didn't have spare capital to, to just hand me to work on this side project that was gonna, you know, in all likelihood take away my time, decrease their returns. And it, and it just makes, there's just so many things like that, so many small businesses, so many ideas that if they had that capital from investors, because there are so many investors that I think would, there are investors that want to invest that know these niches. And the problem for entrepreneurs, the, it, it, there's a recent SEC annual report from the small business office that said, if I, my numbers are correct, the average early stage investor lives 37 miles away from the company they put money into. 37 miles. It's like, it's like trying to raise money from a local bank. It's just, we live in a global interconnected financial system where anybody with a phone nowadays, you don't even need a smartphone, okay? You can have the touchtone SS, uh, the, the, these touchtone phones where you just press the buttons on them and they don't even have a screen and you have to like call. They, they, they you can, you can move money like that in Africa. 
And I, I think if you give those individuals the opportunity to, to really put their capital to use, even if it's just a small, small, limited amount, and I get it. I get that brokerages are expensive to operate. They have these unbelievable costs to, to facilitate trading because of the incumbent system and largely because of the DTCC. And I get that they can't offer services for compliance and ongoing costs and, and all, all these reasons that are wrong with the system. They can't offer these, these services to international, a very, very, very large number of international investors. I get it. But if we could just build a new system that puts all these global interests in mind, because the systems, the fragmented systems that are in place today, I, I get it. They were built in an age before the internet. They were built in an era where you had to know a guy to know who knows a guy who knows the right, you know, to, to actually get an investment and to access the capital markets. But we, we don't live in that world anymore, Chives. And I see nothing but benefits to more investors in the market, more eyeballs on stocks, and a more diverse pool of investors gaining access in a responsible manner to the companies that they would invest in if they only knew existed. Because you shouldn't have to live next door to the next Steve Jobs. You shouldn't have to, you just, you shouldn't, okay? And, and, and I think it would do nothing but benefit international economic development to have this kind of interconnected global financial system for the clearing and settlement of securities transactions. I mean, boy, you've, you've, You've covered a broad swath here, and it's hard to know exactly where to begin to follow up. Because I mean, I can hear the 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 trembling passion that you have, and I and I share it as well. What I I think the first thing I'd say is I know you mentioned early on, you know, that let's say that capitalism can be this incredible incredible arbiter for economic discovery, for innovation, for technological growth, and while absolutely to a large degree that is true, the trouble that we see with the current system is that the uh, these middlemen and the centralization have created such a glut and a le- are leeching on the potential of active entrepreneurs that make it actively difficult for them to succeed, not only because of an uh, inability to properly access a worldwide capital market, but because even when they do, the what they are able to gain access to is sapped away and taken by uh these you know, people who control the means of economic communication and and that is really the again the the larger problem absolutely and if we did have a worldwide capital system which was more focused on when you said focused on global i was thinking focused on regular people cuz those are certainly the that that's the vast majority of the user yeah. base and if we were able to diverse divest from these uh these central gluts and these leeches and that uh what that represented if that's 3 or 10 or 15 or whatever percent if that was disseminated back into the system you are already talking about a growth which I mean, any, any kind of GDP or, uh, or, or global growth would love to see that kind of redistribution. But because the monetary policy is so intertwined with each other and ultimately top heavy in terms of its focus and benefit, 
you know, we're running into quite a lot of problems. And that is, uh, again, why these distributed ledger technologies can be so helpful. We talked, you know, you mentioned about uh, Africa. Um, I used to always think about, you know, helping to bank the unbanked, but not in the sense that you get them a Chase account. <laughs> it is in the sense that you you provide for them the technological opportunity to have secure investment through cryptography. And I used to think about how you could be in the in the Sri Lankan mountains and send a Bitcoin transaction by smoke signal if you really wanted to. <laughs> and that is the kind of opportunity and edu- not only um, technological opportunity, but educational opportunity and economic opportunity that, that we would love to see spread throughout the world. But boy, I mean, this whole problem and this broad idea of a, of a solution is kind of cart before horse, because I know that, uh, we're, as we said at the, at the top, right? Focus on America first, trying to lead by example and to try to, to refocus back on, uh, on this primary idea of, you know, all these, all these assets are held by this centralized security depository and they've been actively chasing dematerialization, uh, which, you know, yes, benefit, you know, lots of benefits in that, but it does make it all the more difficult to feasibly escape that system. So that's where uh, the, the idea of DRS comes into play, which, of course, is a DTT, DTC service. They're interested, I'm sure, in uh, providing it. It's the question of complicit member brokers that are more interested in issuing extra entitlements that might not be. Uh, so that's, you know, a, a minority, I'm sure. Uh, but who knows uh, as far as membership goes? Uh, and and then again, then that's where you can come in. So I, I do want to hear more about um, the idea of the transfer agent using blockchain. I mean, to me, uh, it makes perfect sense. You must be able to offer, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you must be able to offer the same services as a traditional transfer agent. Uh, but if reporting is wanted, if any kind of immediate access to the technology is wanted. You don't need to have some uh, employee ready to print or run a report to provide to an issuer that's a client of yours when the blockchain is being maintained in real time by a worldwide series of nodes. So that that right there allows you, you know, and and the derivative savings from that allow you to theoretically, I'm sure, offer at a, a lower premium these services. So is that the case? Is that the thesis? How's that going as far as your market penetration? Because the, uh, talk about hidden monopolies, but, uh, 75 to 80% of issuers use just five transfer <laughs> agents. So it's a, a space in which innovation does not often happen. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt there are chives. There is light at the end of the tunnel. There are public statistics on sort of the consolidation and, and how much that oligopoly controls. And the good news is that over the past decade, the top players have been losing market share to new entrants, new entrants that use the same technology, but just, you know, offer, I mean, just to put it frankly, there are a number of transfer agents that, 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 that doing anything with them is just a, a real PIA. Um, and, and I, I could, I don't think it's respectful to dive more into that. Um, but you, you hit it on the head, Chives. 
with the smoke signal example. It, it really is all about cryptography. And I know you mentioned earlier the patent application. The core, the essence, and uh, even from day one, if you look at our founding thesis on that Inventure Prize video from Georgia Tech, is always been this idea that you could use cryptography rather than the legacy system, which is presently bank stamps that you have to kind of, that are only provided in the United States by, by and large. And you have to kind of physically go there to get this special bank stamp every time you want to transfer the stock. Because as we mentioned two weeks ago, the transfer of stock really is the problem here. I got a book under my desk. It's it's called The Transfer of Stock. It was heralded as the the essence of corporate finance in the 1950s by the New York Times. And it, it's it, you can't even find it today. Like, I can't believe I, I freaking, like, pawned it, bought it from, like, the, the, the law library of, <laughs> oh, geez, of the, you know, this very prestigious school. And, um, and, and the problem always has been the transfer of stock. It is just, it's, it's challenging. It has been historically challenging to do before the innovations of distributed ledger technology and the cryptography that it uses. And so that's kind of the real value add here. And the real differentiator that, that frankly puts us, as we mentioned in the SEC review letter, it, it really allows us to do things that, that none of the legacy transfer agents really could feasibly even conceive of because they were, they were built in just, I mean, the transfer agents were built in the, in the 1700s. Okay. And, and, and respectfully, they just, they use the exact same freaking systems that have been in place for decades, not decades, centuries. Um, and it, and it just doesn't work. And because it doesn't work, as I'm sure maybe you've, you've had personally, but I'm sure the community's seen, if you, if you want to do anything with old transfer agents, the, the legacy system, it just doesn't work. Okay. You can't trade. There are all these drawbacks of DRS. You can do basically nothing with your shares like even if you just even if you want to take it from drs and put it somewhere where you can do things with it that's going to take a freaking week on the low end okay on the low it's and it's just awful okay it's just terrible so the big innovation is using cryptography for the transfers and as soon as you use cryptography and dlt for that kind of stuff which has just these unbelievably clear benefits to the in, the entire financial system. As soon as you do that, it opens up the world. Uh, Stellar specifically, by my knowledge, was the first project to really introduce this idea of a decentralized exchange based off of atomic swaps. And atomic swaps are just a fancy word for cryptography that lets you and me trade stock without going through brokers. So as I'm sure you're familiar in the Bitcoin world, even if you're just dealing with some technical things I won't dive into, but... Uh, I mean, you know, it's pretty simple. You know, you sign this transaction using math, using electronic algorithm, and it's just math. And you you submit it to the blockchain network, submit it to the nodes, and that is is kind of your proof that you're that you are who you say you are, right? You don't have to go to the bank, show them your IDs, 
print out all the paperwork for them, get their stamp, mail it. Um, for instance, with the with the legacy transfer agent system. And instead, you can just do it all on a mobile app like what you're used to with a broker, except it's actually done in a way that you are the owner of the stock, not some, not some, you know, shadow corporate, you know, not some central depository. Um, so, so that's kind of the big innovation. And as soon as you introduce the cryptography, it just opens the floodgates to all the really incredible things that we can do, you know, like the direct investor trading on the roadmap is you can lend shares through smart contracts. And then you actually know that the person receiving the shares only has that share. They don't get the voting rights and they can't rehypothecate them. Um, things like that. And then, and then obviously we do the corporate voting on the blockchain. And so, you know, that the, you, you know, you don't even have to ask us. You can tally anonymously the voting results for the company based off public ownership information. Uh, so things like that, just, they just solve a whole lot of problems that you have in the current system. Absolutely. I mean, you've touched on some of the major troubles right there, just in those couple of lines. Uh, voting questions, rehypothecation, uh, empty voting. I mean, these are these are just massive, massive problems that have plagued <laughs> that have plagued the markets uh, forever. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's huge. It's huge. And I I have some. I do have some. Definitely some questions just about in terms of the. Regulatory structure, uh, maybe I can start there. I know that at the top I'd said SEC approval, and you clarified that that's a fairly straightforward process. But my my follow-up question to that all this time later would be, does that mean that the SEC was not – like did they recognize cryptographic ownership in the same way? Or what exactly, um, if anything, was different about your approval process uh, in the context of you're trying to use a blockchain to certify ownership. Um, cause I, I, I've been very curious about that to start. Yeah. There's this cool thing called SEC rule 17 AD 15. And for those not familiar, the whole AD series of the exchange act is promingled the adopting releases. That's kind of the whole transfer agent regulatory regime. And it's all pretty super outdated. Um, because I mean, it's, it, it does its job for legacy transfer agents, okay? Yes, it does. It, it, you know, if you're a company and you do the stock transfers through this stupid manual, pro- respectfully outdated manual process that that involves all these physical people and it's this legacy process, okay, sure. You know what? The rules work for them. Um, but But the rules don't work, as you suggested, for cryptography. Now, the cool thing is that under that... SEC rule, transfer agents can actually decide how they transfer stock. They can decide what process investors need to go through to transfer stock. And respectfully, there's just been no innovation ever, like in this sector, because, you know, the incumbents here make billions of dollars on this outdated system that's super complicated. And not only do they make a ton of money, but they have these affiliate companies like the law firms, for example, that make stupid amounts of money every time you want to do anything through a transfer agent, because the transfer agent requires you, this is unbelievable. All right, we we put this in the comment letter. These companies are wasting hundreds of hours a year on internal or external legal counsel. There's always a lawyer for this they're wasting hundreds of hours of year getting these stupid letters that say that an executive owned the stock for more than six months it's just it's 
it's unbelievable how how much money gets wasted here, how much time gets wasted, how much talent could be better utilized. That's just one example, okay? And the impacts are are, are, are literally billions, if not trillions, of dollars. I'd say uh, across all you know 150,000 SEC filers that are companies, and and it's just this this ridiculous process that has been entrenched by these incumbents because they're public corporate. Most of them are public corporations. Granted, one of the other monopolies is owned by a private equity firm, but, 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 you know, they have an incentive to make this the most complex process God could imagine because they make so much money. Um, and that's why I think the nonprofit motives that were documented in that SEC letter and that are present throughout our organization in that we're donating all the shares to a nonprofit as soon as we build out the infrastructure. That's why the nonprofit factor is so, so, so important. Um, because you need to remove the conflict of interest between the firms that, that these guys, that the companies hire. You need to remove the conflict of interest between them and investors. And certainly the best way to do that will be just to remove their influence on the trades that happen between yeah. investors. Um, with you there 100%, because at the end of the day, I mean, the best way to trust that someone is not going to abuse their access is to make sure they don't have access. And that's why we'd love to, I'd love to see this transformation. So that's super interesting. I did not know that transfer agents had the freedom to decide, uh, kind of that base level, um, bookkeeping, uh, technology. And I suppose at the end of the day, that individual transfer agents are going to need to convince new clients that, you know, if they're doing it a different way, that's going to be something which is helpful and consistent when it comes to providing transfer agent services. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think that anyone else is really going to do this because it is such a large leap. And, and the bigger problem I see here is that as soon as you make the leap from medallion signature guarantee, the physical bank stamps, to cryptography, all of a sudden you can really do everything that the current financial system of banks, brokers, and custodians can do with on, on the basis of investors self-custodying their assets. And that's all enabled, like I said, through the Stellar Decentralized Exchange, which is a protocol. Uh, for those not familiar, Stellar came out about a month after Ethereum, and it was founded by the, uh, actually started, co-founded by the the founder of Ripple, um, and so the problem was that this guy and a number of people at Ripple saw saw problems. Saw they they were not happy with the way that Ripple developed, uh, in that it was ba- you know it was built to serve banks, and they wanted something that was built to serve individuals. They wanted something that was built to serve global, you know, the whole global the the, the world. They wanted something that was built. Um, very specifically from day one for disenfranchised investors and, and, you know, individuals in developing nations that don't have access to quality financial services. Um, that's a very, very brief background, but it's extremely prevalent in everything that the, the Stellar Network does in that it's all, it's all very much based off of a nonprofit motive and it's done to the same high standards that Ethereum has done. And it's, it's also good, you know, Ethereum classified by Gensler, at least not as a security. You've got the same very, I mean, it's literally like the same launch date, the same structure, the same platform for Stellar. And the trading system from the SDEX has been there since day one. So that was, you know, 2015. And it has processed 
and I don't have the exact numbers, but it's a huge number of uh, decentralized transactions. We actually traded through the STEX for for a very extended period of time just to make sure everything worked out when I was still doing personal trading before I had to unfortunately kind of put a stop to that so I could focus on this project, on this company. Um, we were trading through there, and it's really cool. I mean, you just you sign the stuff mathematically. There's no middleman. There's no broker. There's There's no one to go through. And it just gets put on this blockchain order book. That was that was what the thesis was about from day one. It was always a decentralized order book, and uh, and Stellar was really the only one, the only the only actual level one blockchain order book that lets you do this kind of stuff. Um, and then of course they have, like I said, the precedent of having you know nearly a decade now. The technology has been in practice, proven, and it freaking works. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. The ledgers close every five seconds or so, and. And the money goes from my account to the other guy, and the the asset goes from the other guy to my account, and it, and it happens like that. And uh, and there are a number of other very material benefits to the particular consensus mechanism that Stellar uses that facilitate the fair and equitable secondary market of of assets that we have that, for issuers that use our platform. That's that's a terrific kind of background. Thanks so much, and thanks for specifying that Stellar is a level one decentralized order book uh, because I think a lot of the listener base that might be interested in GameStop is probably familiar with uh, level two Ethereum tokens like Loopring, which also have um, decentralized exchange um, uh, structure in place, but that is operating on level two. That's a great uh, distinction to be made about these different uh, different structures that we have in the market today. Yeah, the problem with level two... You know, you mentioned this in your in an email. You know, recently I was uh, it was a number of years ago. I was scheduled to speak at a conference with the founder of a transfer agent with a hundred million dollars of the funding. And do you know who showed up instead of the founder CEO? It was a man legally named Mr. Profit, who led their business division, charging. 1% trading fees through a structure similar to an L2 order book where you have this intermediary that controls the rules, that sets up the system, that handles the clearing and settlement. And 1% trading fees chives do not mesh with efficient capital markets. And the way they did that is through an ATS. We talked about an ATS two weeks ago, but... But that's kind of the situation. I talked with, for instance, the founder of the first widespread order book because Stellar's kind of under the radar. And they they had very, very good transa- traction, millions of transactions in the first very brief period of its operation. And and real quick, they got a knock on the door from the regulators. <laughs> and the, the, the problem is they try to do it as on a peer-to-peer basis using some of the same file sharing technology you might be familiar with for like a torrent network, which, which, you know, is the basis for a lot of the technology that I see on the YDRS site and the subsites and the directory you guys employ, which is awesome. Super decentralized is great. There's so many benefits. We could talk all day about it, but when it comes to securities trading, if you use that technology, you create an ATS. And that's what this guy did. He was the head of their ATS division. And that is that. I mean, there's just so much regulation there, as there should be, because these, these, these 
I'm just going to use ATS. I can't think of off the top of my head a, a good way to kind of make it a more concise term that you guys could think about. But but these ATSs, are they, they're the reason. that they're, they're, I think they're very much a root cause of the problems we see in our markets today. They originated, um, they enabled, obviously, the, the, the innovation Bernie Madoff had of payment for order flow. And, and they... And they were created by people working at banks that wanted money. Um, and so it's just unbelievable how much money flows through these, these, these dark pools. I mean, ATSs are the dark pools and, and, and no one knows about it. And it's all enabled by the clearing and settlement system for American securities transactions. And, and, and that's the problem with level two. And that's why seller, we think is really the only solution after extensive due diligence for really creating an equitable market that enables the financial system we talked about where global investors can connect with global issuers, global companies to facilitate what we think really is the next evolution of capitalism in the web three world. And just to, as an amendment or maybe a more like an asterisk, for those who don't know the ATS, it's like an alternative trading system, which long story short is uh, not an exchange, but is a place where buy and sell orders get matched up. It's extremely broad and loosely regulated, but uh, that's, that's kind of, um, kind of my quick notes on that for those who might have needed it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great to hear. You know, Stellar is something that I was not familiar with at all until first uh, becoming introduced to uh, what you guys are working on over there. And it seems as though, although they are, you know, they have an operating order book, it's absolutely, as you said, something which, uh, com- at least compared to these broad goals about revolutionizing modern uh, capital markets themselves and providing a different infrastructure for them, uh, this is this is still an infancy stage, and so I'm curious uh, to know more, John. When it comes to block transfer, trying to explain all this to prospective clients or trying to actually achieve market penetration, uh, when when we spoke a few weeks ago, it seemed as though you had I think um, you had a client at that time, but they were a private company using you for uh, you know tracking uh, in-house assets and ownership. Do you have any, uh, do you have any, I suppose, if you don't mind my asking, but leads towards breaking into this space that we're talking about? Because even though there are so many benefits to be had for the issuer and for the investors in terms of both cost and time savings, in addition to, uh, just removing all of this incredible complication, I could still appreciate that a new technology is scary, even after years in the market. Would you mind just speaking a bit to your experience with that as the as the founder and leader of this uh, business? Yeah, uh, it just, we should definitely circle back to private markets because private markets are a really interesting point of discussion. Um, to think that that you would charge a company dozens of thousands of dollars a year just so that its investors could trade with each other, I find bizarre. Um, but in terms of kind of like our company, the syndicate and, and sort of the nonprofit and the associated things that we put in that SEC letter submitting system for review, um, our mentality, just to give you some perspective, has always been doing this the right way. Um, I, and over the years, I personally have 
allocate, you know, I, I've, I've, um, I've, I've brought other people on to kind of work on this with the limited resources that we had and they've been, and, uh, and, and just the long and short of it is that I've kind of basically built the system out myself. It's, it's pretty evident in the patent application, which is like literally just something I wrote kind of at the end of summer before school started one year. Um, and, and it's just kind of based on my, my knowledge, my understanding of our current system based on, on my personal experience as an individual investor. And so the, so, so basically there's nobody else that's like working on this because we don't have, like you said, any clients or any money. And really we wanted this first example, this first client, this first client, by the way, has turned out to be just an unbelievable case study of a small business run by a woman, you know, a black woman, you know, run by, it's a minority run business with a chair. I mean, it's, it's a great example of a small American business just trying to access capital. Uh, like they got, they, they can't even open a bank account. I mean, it's, we had to do their notarization, which is a whole nother process. That's super freaking stupid. Just to access the SEC reporting systems, you have to get the special bank stamp and it's, it's, it's just a remnant of an outdated system. And, and they've been great. Uh, they, they're, they're really our case study. We wanted to build out real data on a real example client, uh, because as I, as I mentioned, we spoke to dozens of public American CFOs designing this system which is tad three. When I talk about the system, it's all, it's all about tad three, which is, which is documented on our site. And, uh, and, and, the, and we want tad three to work and, and to be right at, from day one, because you're dealing with people, you're dealing with people's money, their savings, their retirements. I mean, it's important. It, it, it's, it's important to get right. And the good news is because I'm the only one still work, the only one really working on it from day one, but since I'm the only one working on it, um, and I have sort of a, a reserve built up having, you know, run, I run a hedge fund mostly. I have that reserve and trading and I have it built personally. I have it built so that, you know, I can, I can wait. Uh, you know, recently we finished documenting everything material and that's why we were able to submit that SEC letter with real data. If you look through that, there's actually programmatic endpoints you can access to look at example infrastructure that we've built out over the past number of years um, is to, it's to really give them a, a quality perspective on what we're proposing as the first. And I'd say, I think it might be good if it's kind of like the main way people think of with the transfer agent depository concept. Um, because the, because, because once you really have uh, the first transfer agent depository, which is what we're building, which is tab three more specifically, um, once you have that, you, I think you really have a whole new system that no one's really thought of because, because most people just think the street name is the system, but street name is not, the, is not the answer as we've, as you know, you've, you guys have eloquently shown. So yeah, I mean, long and short of it is there are plenty of public American CFOs that have vehemently expressed their extreme distaste for the system that want more than anything to use TAD3. And it just comes down to we're not, you know, I, I, I don't need their money. We don't, I own a hundred percent of the company stock. So there's no investors I have to answer to. And I, my full intention is to donate the shares to a nonprofit. And so, um, you know, luckily because of that position, 
I, we, you know, we don't have an incentive, a perverse incentive to try to launch this too quickly because it really needs to be done the right way. Like if we took GameStop on tomorrow and had hundreds of thousands of these investors that, that rightfully, rightfully want to use TAD3, I, I'm, you know, I just want to make sure it all works properly. There's, there's some nuances on the IRS compliance and reporting for the bases that aren't traditionally covered by transfer agents that are important. And there's also not a whole lot of good transfer agent AML regulation, unfortunately. So there are like some material regulatory regime things that need to be cleared up. I think for TAD3 to, to launch and scale. And that's what we're worried. I mean, that's what I'm working on every day, man. So, so that, that's kind of the current situation. Does that make sense, Chives? Yeah. Well, I appreciate your, your kind of honesty in, in expressing that, you know, I mean, it's, uh, to admit that growth is not the immediate goal is something that a lot of, uh, a lot of, I guess I'd say what, startups or even just companies in general are not going to be willing to do in the modern environment. So I definitely appreciate that kind of uh, openness. Um, do you feel though that that kind, uh, and I guess before I even say anything further, I much appreciate the mentality where taking extra time to measure before cutting, yeah. you know, to make sure that the, uh, everything is working properly and is going to, uh, not create undue regulatory hassle for the, uh, for the clients that you might hypothetically have. That's definitely a good route to go if you want to be a mainstay, uh, presence in the space, uh, because you really only get, uh, one shot at entering the public, uh, public market in terms of uh, whether or not as a representative of a publicly traded company, uh, rather than like an IPO, but either way, you're you got a first impression that you're trying to make sure that you do a great job with. That makes sense. Uh, but do you ever feel that other companies may come up to um to steal the lunch, as it were? I mean, I, I have some cursory googling I've done. I also saw a transfer agent called Securitize. Have you heard of them at all? But they also appear to be a transfer agent operating in some kind of pro blockchain space. That was actually the company I was talking about with the earlier story about the ATS guy. <laughs> okay. How about that? So you think what you're doing is, is, uh, functionally enough different from them, um, ideologically perhaps such that, uh, you're not so worried about that as a, as yeah, competition? I really, uh, I learned about securitize kind of like a ways into building this. And I thought, oh, shit, I'm just going to not do this because these guys have the answer. They have the funding. They have the professional expertise to build this thing out. Um, but unfortunately, it's just not done to the standards that you would expect in Web3. It's not it, like, I mean, I really don't want to make this about them and bashing what they've very, you know, they've put a lot of time and effort into building their systems and and, you know, they're just the legacy transfer agent systems, right? So the trading doesn't happen on the ledger. It happens through like a T0 ATS, something like that. And, yeah, mm-hmm. and and the transfers on the blockchain, even though that's theoretically possible, it's not actually what's called the master security holder file for the issuer. So that means that when you transfer the stock on the blockchain, it actually, it doesn't actually transfer. It doesn't actually settle. It doesn't change ownership. 
until secure until they have this kind of system where they reconcile things um that's done on oh, a private okay. internal corporate ledger. Yeah, that sounds significantly yeah. different. That's like um taking a, a step towards the door while you're already outside in in the new environment. So I much appreciate your 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 explaining that. I, uh, interesting, you know, I mean half measures yeah. <laughs> half me- or quarter yeah. measures really. Well, it, it, it makes sense though for a company that is seeking, you know, profit and growth to want to maintain that type of control, uh, because ultimately that's what they're able to sell and capitalize on, uh, when it comes back to, I mean, who knows? I'll have to do some more reading about, about them. So I am curious, but, uh, it's great to, great to know that there's someone working in the space, which is actually seeking and this and this still blows my mind, but I'll I'll go back to when we spoke a few weeks back. You know, you had shared, and so if we can get more perhaps into the uh, the way that you're intending for this to operate for investors, people can actually provide um, either a wallet or you generate them a wallet, right? But the point being that it's self custodial for them, and so they have uh, control over the peer to peer transaction of the assets within that wallet. And then rather than taking a direct role in the transactions, you're monitoring the Stellar blockchain and making the, or noting any necessary changes in the, uh, in the ownership as they happen. Is that, is that a fair representation? It is, but there's also a pretty important aspect of Stellar. Um, and if you're not familiar, there's this thing called trust lines and Basically, you have a public key, an account on Stellar that, that kind of issues these assets. And that central account can approve and deny who can hold the asset. It can determine what they can do with the asset on demand. And there are some other important central control things that you can do without actually accessing the investor's private key. And yeah. Oh, okay. That's yeah. fascinating. I know I yeah. was not aware of that. Yeah, they're really built for regulated assets from day one. That's great. That's great to know. Okay. So, and that answers, I think, I had some other questions that were about like, well, how can, you know, what do you do if someone sells an asset? How would you ever get the name and address of the new owner? Yada, yada, yada. But because of this, um, graduated access system that Stellar provides, um, you do not need to worry about missing out on necessary regulatory functional information. That makes perfect sense. Uh, that's great to hear. So something like that then, um, what type of notice or communication do you need with an investor in order to uh, open that up to them? Is peer-to-peer trading still available to investors or do they need to stay within um, stay within your system to some degree. Uh, and I guess all of this is going to be hypothetical still since there are no public stocks, but how do you intend for it to work? Yeah. Well, as I mentioned two weeks ago, um, we will see trading in, in, in a little less than a year when the shares become unrestricted in this first client. Um, because the trading system is exactly the same for private and public companies as it should be. I mean, this is a company that issues stock and more and more companies nowadays aren't going through the paperwork of doing an IPO. They're staying private for longer and longer. They're raising more and more money as a private company. 
And for investors like you and I, we're, we're really missing out on, on early stage opportunities. You think about there are like literally so many platforms built around this idea that you buy a stock a couple of weeks or months before it goes public from an insider. That's really what we're doing at scale at any point in time during a private company's life cycle. And all of a sudden that solves all these problems that you have on the private company side where you have to get valuations from an auditing firm that aren't actually representative of what investors think your company is worth. Like my grandpa, for example, worked at this engineering company for decades and they had this employee share plan where this, you know, this outside company would, would put a number on the value of the stock every single year. And just this person That's they normal, trust yeah. becomes the source of information for how much the company is worth based off of comparison with the public uh, industry comparisons. And, and that's stupid. Okay. It's just ridiculous. It's not accurate. Okay. I don't care how many people try to tell me that you can do some compare. I mean, it, it's just, it's not okay. There is one person we should be listening to for the company valuation and it's the market. Okay. It's, it's what investors will pay for the stock. Ideally absent of this unbelievable broker manipulation with the issuance of, you know, all these shares. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's that's the caveat. I mean, if we could listen to the market as the single arbiter, that'd be terrific if the market were a free and reasonable <laughs> arbiter of investor intent, which unfortunately at the yeah. moment it is not. But maybe maybe a transition into the type of system that you're trying to provide would uh, would actually make a meaningful impact in the, the, the truthful reliability of market price uh, when it comes to company health or investor sentiment, which, again, at the moment, I don't think there's any kind of real correlation there. Yeah, that's right. That is terrific. That is terrific. So, I mean, boy, I, I think that's um, – I have a couple other just brief questions then in terms of further functionality. Uh, one thing I'm personally really curious about, um, and I don't know if you're familiar at all with this, uh, service called Collabland, but it's a, um, basically what they do is you can plug in your public key, public address, and it will check to see what type of, um, assets you have in that wallet, for example, like an NFT. And then Based on the contents of the wallet, it, it will maintain real-time access to something like a Discord server. So it'll automatically maintain only people with X NFT can access Y Discord server, just as an example. And that's an example of using, um, you know, public wallet contents to maintain access to various social networks. Uh, something that I have seen a lot of buzz about, certainly in the Reddit, GameStop, uh, basket stock, uh, online communities is this similar desire for something where, oh, if only we could have a forum where only directly registered individuals could oh, be in there. Cool. You know, that kind of, so that kind of idea. Um, now granted, of course, with the DRS system, it's going to be very difficult, um, to, I know while those names are technically public, they can only be viewed once a year. Yeah. 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 Oh, like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and they yeah. have so no my data question really on being, the investors. It's like name, address, share. Oh, well, yeah. For the public stock list, that's true. For for the uh, the, the stock ledger is more of a historical record, but that can only be. Well, that, we're getting into yeah, different, different weeds. weeds. My, yeah, my, yeah. my my question being, is, do you would you expect that that kind of service would be possible 
uh, through the Stellar Network, because uh, that that is something I'd really love to see. Um, and if if the blockchain is public, I see no reason why it wouldn't be. I was just curious for your thoughts on that. And if companies would ever take advantage of having a guaranteed uh, online community of uh, anonymized people who have skin in the game. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea, Chaz. I'd be happy to discuss that and further follow up with you. Um, the long and short of it is that, yeah, there, there's a pretty extensive NFT community on Stellar. And at the end of the day, when you're using this cryptography and the investors own their own keys, they have them, you know, physically uh, written down somewhere, put somewhere mm-hmm. safe, and they maintain, you know, the access through a cryptographic wallet. And they, it, it's trivial through digital signatures to verify this is my account, this is the public key, and this is these are my public holdings that you can check at any time. It's it's very very basic, uh, simple math. Yes, it is. Well, that's great to hear that you believe it would be. I mean, so you can simple, do it today. That isn't. Oh yeah. yeah, as I mentioned, uh, services exist which do it, but I wasn't sure. If, um, you know, that, that graduated access system that Stellar has or if any other aspect of the regulatory, um, uh, necessities that you need to keep track of things like, you know, name, address, um, billing information, et cetera, for, uh, investor clients, you know, things that you'd keep securely as a business that wouldn't be connected to the public blockchain. I wasn't sure if any of that would impact the ability for that kind of uh, auditing. And the nice thing about that kind of system, just to put a bow in that idea, is that anyone could set it up at that point. If it's a public blockchain that anyone can view to, to look for assets, it doesn't matter if, for example, you know, uh, if GameStop was a company that had this kind of system, it doesn't matter if GameStop wants to have a forum like that or not, or if Block Transfer wants to provide it, a investor who is uh, reasonably motivated oh, yeah. could do that. So, that's a very nice thing to think about when it comes to the Web3 future and uh, decentralized uh, ability to take advantage of this type of what should be public information. That's right. So, so and, and absolutely, I'd love to, you know, if that's something that interests you thinking about, certainly I love thinking about that type of community resource, but we could put a pin in that one and come back to it in uh, in some months or something. Um, the uh, one other just, thing I wanted to ask you about, and and I know we've gone on for quite a while, so before I hop into this other question, I hope uh, it's been almost two hours. Um, How are you feeling? What kind of time commitments do you have tonight? Yeah, well, you know, I actually keep a pitcher of water. I'm you know, when, when I do work like this, I, I really drink a lot of water. So in this course of this meeting, I've drinking a little bit over a gallon and a half of water. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably about 20 ounces deep myself. That's good, that's good. Um, there is one thing I wanted to do today that I, I, uh, you know, we jumped right into everything. I didn't get a chance to. I wanted to get, send my thanks to, uh, this public information, Mr. Dalton Zerland, who put in an SEC comment supporting our submission of TAD3 to the commission. Uh, I did appreciate it. I really do ex- uh, want to extend my heartfelt thanks for your support and the trust that you've placed in me. Your words truly resonated. And it's it's very refreshing to find someone who not only understands the complexities of our financial systems, but also shares a vision for a more equitable and transparent future. So appreciate that, Dalton. Oh, hey, yeah, I, I read that comment too. Um, 
definitely a great one. You could you could hear the passion and frustration in yeah. those words, and uh, and and that is the beauty of this public commenting system. I mean, there were clearly several, I think, comments that came in in the last day or two uh, that I that I think were thanks to your shout out, our community. So appreciate anyone that was motivated to submit a comment, and I would encourage folks to take advantage of the nature of public comment. I mean, if if you look at it, there are so few and so many of them come from obviously massive interests and, uh, or just interests from the other side. Uh, I, I remember noticing in the, and for those who aren't aware, I guess I'll just share that this is in regards to the, uh, Edgar kind of open AI, um, comment submission, which was a couple of weeks ago. And, we there were, I saw other comments from law firms that were saying, you know, this is terrible. You know, we we do a great job. This is not necessary. <laughs> yeah, don't get rid of you our know, jobs. Which of course they would. Right, which of course they would because that's their bread and butter. So of course they're going to comment to such an extent. But if you want to, um, if you're an investor who's passionate about some specific company, then you would want to support a proposal which is going to make it easier for them to submit new information, to, su- to submit uh, regu- uh, filing information, save money that way. So there's, there's, some, there's some, great, uh, some great thoughts on there. Great to see that. And, and nice shout-out. Uh, thanks, Dalton. So that being said, though, how are you feeling as far as time is concerned? Oh, I scheduled out. Um, I know, yeah. So we got a number of things. My girlfriend's pretty mad at me. I think she wants me to do stuff with her. Uh, so if there's any other like big. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me. All right, let me ask you just one last yeah, thing, yeah. if you don't mind, and then we can then we can wrap it. And I'd, I'm sure that we'd love to uh, to have you on, you know, again in the future. Anyways, I really love talking to you. Uh, so, so few folks out there. I mean, what is it? A matter of a couple thousand in a market which services hundreds it's of millions that, uh, that, that know about this stuff. So, <laughs> so that being aside, though, you know, uh, is what I well, one other thing that I wanted to make sure to ask you about, and you touched on this briefly earlier, which I found very interesting. Um, direct stock purchase plans. This is something that's a hotbed issue, certainly within the broader, um, you know, modern investor advocacy community that's been raised from the, the GameStop phenomenon in 21. Um, there is so much question about uh, transfer agents incentives when it comes to uh, orchestrating these plans, uh, providing them to issuers. Uh, the different involvement at a, you know, a, a fees level, a custody level. And I was just curious, not only to hear about, um, your perspective on the issue kind of in broad as far as how they most often work in the system today, but then beyond that, if you could also briefly touch on if there is such an ability for, uh, or even a need for that kind of direct stock purchase plan once you've hypothetically transitioned onto this type of blockchain system? Like, does it circumvent the need for it entirely? Do you expect issuers to want an analog? Um, just curious for you to speak a bit uh, broadly about all of that, and then, you know, we'll, then we'll wrap yeah, up, okay? this is what I wanted to talk about when I mentioned earlier DWAC and just kind of simplifying. Uh, it's just making sure we're all on the same page on what book entry means and, and kind of what DRS means. 
Um, the way it works right now, I'll use my uncle's company as an example. They have an employee share plan, and it's it's pretty much the same for well, we can dive in. Um, so basically, a DSPP, uh, what it means. Let me give you an example, because the DSPP is very different from that example. Um, so do so just a little, very brief background, and this this ties in this ties into comments made last week by Bivik. Um, Duke Energy is one of the largest electric power holding companies in the United States, and they provide electric service to nearly 8 million clients in six states. Now, very early on, is actually the first video I ever uploaded. Well, that's not entirely true. I, I kind of dabbled in like video game production, but those videos aren't public anymore. When I was a teenager, like, very young. Uh, the, the first public video on my YouTube channel, um, is, is a stock lecture series I call Stock Market Secrets Exposed. And I know in your email you had some other, some other questions about the education side of the work I do. And, and, uh, you know, just briefly, you, you, you basically, you can, you can watch it at wootenwealth.com. Uh, it was the first, kind of foray I ever had into teaching about investing and, you know, what I'm passionate about. And on the first day of that seminar, I just put some flyers up around my high school and got a teacher to let me use their science classroom. And it was overflowing. I mean, there's so many people showed up. I was like, Jesus, how many people care about investing this much? Um, it was like standing room only. It was, it was pretty crazy. And from that series, it was over the course of a semester, you would call it, I guess, if you, but you know, it was, it was like all spring, basically. I planned out this course and taught it at, in, at school. And, uh, from that, you know, students and teachers, there was, there was one individual that, you know, actually came to all the meetings. Uh, after about the third or fourth week, he was basically the only guy there or one of the very few people there. Uh, for for all the meetings, and and it, it, I mean it's so inspirational. He, he's uh, he was the inspiration behind my investing handbook at nine to noon secrets dot com. He showed me after that after that seminar that was in spring when school ended. He started uh, trading. He started investing his lawnmower money in our great financial market. And just buying up stocks, and it's so inspirational for me. That was really the the nerve that led me to write nine to noon. And and uh, so uh, yeah, so his name was Jake, and his dad is the so Duke Energy was one of the very very few public companies that acted as their own transfer agent in the past. And they used to be more common before there was all this like tax stuff you had to keep track of. And then there were all these new regulatory things you had to do with the, with the, with the stock transfers and, and AD 15 and, and yada, yada. Uh, but, but now there's, there's really only, I could count on two hands, probably one hand now, 
the number of public companies that do this for themselves. And, 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 you know, the reason why is, you know, acting as your own transfer agent, as Ludwig mentioned, and exporting the data and doing it yourself. Uh, there, it's just, it's a lot, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. And traditionally, it's a lot of paperwork. And I mentioned mailing checks earlier. That's where Jake's dad, Joe, comes into the story. Joe ran Duke Energy shareholder service operations and was the guy. You know, they didn't have a transfer agent. It was all, it was all Joe's team inside of the company. And the reason why, uh, is because they, they, they couldn't, they couldn't live with the very, very poor service that transfer agents traditionally provide and, and, and provide today to public companies based in an unbelievable amount of ridiculous paperwork. Um, but it's, it was important for Duke because energy companies have a very extensive history in the markets. Uh, last week, from my recollection, Bivik mentioned that some companies started using DRS in 1993 to sell shares directly to individual investors. And that it, I think he said specifically that it was the earliest uh, direct stock purchase plan recorded. And certainly in our current regulated landscape, that is the truth. However, power companies specifically, before we had the Securities and Exchange Commission, there was a man named Samuel Insull. And Mr. Insull was a pioneer of modern power. He was really the first guy to put into produ- into scale wide-scale centralized production of power that took advantage of the efficiencies of scales present in the electric generation business. Uh, you know, I could talk all day on, you know, there's a real need for this, the movement to nuclear, but, but that's kind of politically contentious, so I'm not going to dive into it. Uh, but at the time, of course, they didn't have that. They just had these power stations that were using the current technology to the best of their ability. And there's just a lot of efficiencies in scale in the power generation business that, uh, for him was huge. I mean, he is, Mr. Insel literally invented the collective power grid network that we have today and really facilitated the rural access of power. It used to be, you had to live like right next to a power station. It was only factories that could use electricity. And, uh, it was, I mean, really an innovative, uh, guy who changed the world there. And he was one of the first people, his companies were the first to really sell stock to investors in the 1920s. They would just, they, they hired stockbrokers to, before stockbrokers were a thing, to sell shares of, of the company and to finance its operations through direct access to the investing public's market of capital. And they grew, they grew to become, you know, I mean, nowadays they're regulated monopolies, these power companies, and it's because of the efficiencies of scale that they produce, uh, that, that, that really lets them, you know, they're for-profit public companies regulated. And, you know, if you think about it, Joe told me, you know, like if, if the power company was in a free market and there were briefly, there were very powerful people that tried to, do the power production on a state by state level at a, at a governmental organization and that, that ultimately didn't have the same efficiencies that a nimble private market actor had at the time and continues to have as we see in our current regulated power 
in the United States, all the, you know, all the power companies are regulated. They can't charge you that, you know, the government says what they can charge you because if tomorrow they didn't regulate it and, and the power company said you have to pay us $50 million a day to access electricity, you know, there are a lot of people where they would have no choice but to pay that. Uh, and so it, it necessarily it facilitates because of the efficiencies of scale that centralized production and monopolistic, regulated monopolistic production of power and distribution and ownership of the distribution systems there too provide in the power industry that was pioneered by Mr. Insull. Uh, we have the current system, which is a regulated, regulated oligopoly, I will say, because it's region specific. And there were a lot of early on, there were like these state guys that interfered with things and they were like battling state regulators on, on, on offering power service. It was, it's pretty interesting. There's a great book by Jeremiah Lambert called the power brokers that dives into the nuances of the early power industry. Very good. Not, not well known by any means. Um, but yeah, so, so, so that was kind of the, really the first example of companies accessing capital directly from investors. And that's, that's the crux of what DSPPs are is they, they're, their shelf, so the technical thing that happens here is that the company puts an S3 on a file, which is a self-regular, a self, re, a shelf, Jesus, I'm tired, a shelf registration statement. This is what happens when I don't drink enough water. I can't talk. Um, the, the shelf registration statement on file with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And that registration statement is like an IPO, right? It's like an S1, except for that they can just keep drawing on it over and over again and issuing more shares and selling shares to the public, which is what a, which is what a public IPO is. You know, they're selling shares on a recurring shelf basis to the public. That's what DSPPs are. So when you buy shares through a DSPP, you're not buying it through a market. You're actually buying shares from the company based on the market price. And normally, uh, nowadays, the way DSPPs are implemented is it's like this huge 70-page contract that you enter into generally from the transfer agent, but it's actually facilitated. And there's a there's an extremely extensive history of SEC no-action letters that establish this practice. Basically, what they do is they hire a broker. So for my uncle, their transfer agent's based in Brooklyn, but the actual plan admin goes through J.P. Morgan Chase as the broker intermediary that provides the platform for accessing the current centralized gate-kept tra- trading and settlement markets. And and so the, the trading is actually, even though the company could theoretically do it themselves based on the self-registration statement, the problem at hand is that you have to presently go through a broker-dealer to affect a transaction on someone else's behalf. And because there's no way for a company to sell you stock on the legacy system in any reasonably efficient manner without going through all the bank paperwork of the medallion stamps, the, it, this role is facilitated by brokers that charge companies hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to use their own systems and such. Um, so in Jake, sorry, in Joe's example at Duke Energy, they used, oh, geez, man, I'm freaking tired. I just got this properly documented. They use Morgan Stanley for the actual DSPP share plan administration uh, because you have to have presently in the current regulatory regime a 
a brokerage that that handles and this and we kind of dived into this in our submission letter to the SEC as to our future roadmap plans for a nonprofit brokerage that would facilitate similar things like this and other cool things you can do with with transactions on behalf of investors without necessarily being self-custody. So if you think about like a smart contract where you can, for instance, schedule payments in the future, like that kind of stuff you couldn't really do with a self-custody model that you would theoretically need a nonprofit broker to do. And that's sort of on our roadmap for things to build. And and that's fully detailed in the comment letter. Um, so, so yeah, uh, the DWACs are really just like, uh, a Fox way to do medallion signature guarantee stamps, but instead of actually doing it the proper way where you have the insurance based off the medallion guarantee, which is an underwrite from the bank guaranteeing the investor's identity, there's actually a thing called DRS profile. And earlier I mentioned the system that looks like a Bloomberg terminal and that's what DRS profile is. So it's a private gate kept system that only transfer agents and other, you know, other other industry, you know, the brokers use it. That's what the DWACs go through is DRS profile. Or I'm sorry, DTC profile. Uh, and, and that system has a, a network of surety insurance providers that kind of guarantee that that the investor is who they say they are. And if they're not who they say they are, the DTC has a private insurance provider that you can get a claim with if it turns out to be fake because normally you would you would deal with the bank and their surety insurance you would have on the medallion signature system and that insurance is what guarantees investor identities rather than cryptography and so uh, it's the same thing with the DTC profile system where you have to pay them a fairly sizable premium for insurance and there are a ton of other fees that the transfer agents have to pay the DTC monopoly to access this system and on behalf of the clients. And that's why the average transfer agent, well, not the average transfer agent, basically all transfer agents in existence, based on our understanding and conversations with a man that does absolutely nothing but run a consultation. Uh, he, he runs a, a consulting firm that does nothing but negotiate transfer agent contracts. And they all start at like 20 grand because that's kind of basically what it costs to be part of this DTC monopoly system that you have to be part of because all of the shares are in street name registration and there's no other way to operate a transfer agent. So there's a lot of inefficiencies and things like that. Um, but the important thing to note here with Duke Energy is that they had to contract with a broker dealer to offer the direct share purchase plan. And it's the exact same thing for the employee share ownership plans. And then they, they introduce all these complicated words like restricted stock unit that really just freaking mean shares in the company, which could be much more efficiently done on the books of the company through the transfer agent. And, and that's what we're building at Block Transfer. And that's actually the main value add aside from rule 144 release automation that we've built out and uh, facilitate through through distributed ledger technology. It's the real value add for these public companies. Uh, so, oh, sorry, what was that? That, that, that? No, that was, that was yeah, quite a lot. lot. I mean, it's really uh, a lot. And, and it's great to, great to kind of get that, you know, further overview uh, and it's a terrific anecdote. Um, I know that, I know that I'd said that, that that would be the end, but I have a follow up yeah. here. Cause my, my, my question is, um, I know that you had described, you know, um, 
you you were saying DSPP when referring to companies having special issuance that they would then sell outside of the market, you know, and et cetera. But I'm familiar with that as the acronym DSP, just direct stock plan, as when uh, companies are going through that kind of, um, you know, issuance procedure to directly facilitate investor interest. And then direct stock purchase plan as a, uh, as a more proprietary transfer agent yeah, type of offering, yeah. which does travel to a broker. So I just wanted to make sure, um, uh, maybe that was an oversight because I'm pretty sure that the, uh, DSP and DSPP are such similar acronyms, <laughs> but functionally extremely different. So I just wanted to follow no, up on DSP that. DSP is just this innovation that all these transfer agents invented that they could use to charge companies more money. So they'll be like, Oh, I'll charge you $40 every time an investor buys your stock or some shit. Um, so, so it just goes through profile. What they do is they take your money. Usually it's an ACH direct debit. And then they custody the money as a trust company. So it's usually through a trust company. And then they put the money through profile. And there's this whole settlement system with the banks that ties into NSCC. And they kind of use the DTC's monopoly of being a New York trust company, which offers banking services, because that's actually the entity that has the line into Fedwire to do the Money transfers through the Federal Reserve, um, and so they go through that system, and that's why it takes so long to execute, because then they have to wait for profile to do the DWAC transfer, so they have to be DWAC fast agents, and, and the long and short of DWAC fast is that it's kind of the de facto industry regulation on the minimum transfer agent requirements, and the requirements entitle themselves in terms of uh, super expensive insurance that all these guys have to have to operate. And there are a number of transfer agents and activists that have basically said DTC fast is a pseudo regulation for transfer agents in the current system. Just as there are a number of people that have said that DTC eligible securities is a pseudo requirement for something for off, you know, a securities offering that the big banks and brokers can make money on because you can't actually get an underwriter, even if it's a uh, direct listing, you can't actually do that unless your securities are eligible for use at the DTC, which is part of the, obviously the overall DTC CC monopoly. Um, and so you actually can't even access our current financial capital market system without the DTC giving you this rubber stamp of approval. And that rubber stamp of approval means basically that all the banks and brokers can make a ton of money by charging you fees. And if they don't think that they can do that, then there's no federal requirement that they need you to actually be DTC eligible because they're an SRO and they get to just make the rules whatever they want. Right, exactly. I mean, you're not going to allow someone in that that isn't already paying the uh, the door fee, that is going to be paying a a little bit extra. I mean, that's the beauty of uh, of an established monopoly yeah. system, I suppose. Well, that that that's terrific. What I'd love to do is, is perhaps at a future date, I mean, that's – I know that the custodial breakdown when it comes to these different plan types and their under-the-hood function and how they uh, introduce undue co- complication, not only for the investors, like – cognitive understanding, but also additional stress on their wallet, on issuers' wallets. I mean, it sounds like um, 
that's something that I think the audience and certainly myself would have a lot of interest in spending just as much time as we spent today in broad on that subject specifically, but it'll have to wait. Uh, John, thanks so much for taking all the time to come and speak with us today. Certainly, Chives, and I'll, I'll end with this because I do want to drive home that this is an important problem that has a material impact on how we invest, you know, what com- which companies succeed, and the efficiencies of of secondary trading, which has profound implications on global capitalism development. Um, <clears throat> so Joe at Duke actually had a team of nearly a dozen people. And this is uh, right around when COVID hit, just to give you some perspective. Investor emails are flooding in, phones ringing off the hook. And the reason why is because Joe and his team had no idea how to balance out hundreds of millions of dollars of outstanding but unsettled dividend payments. And specifically, a lot of these investors on the books of the company, as I'm sure you know, are traditional legacy companies that, that don't have the activism behind behind GameStop and some other securities. Uh, they're retirees, you know, they're employees. A lot of times, most of the time, you know, they're people that got stock through work. They got it on the books of the company. And they're just retired, and in Duke's case, they're retirees living off of dividends because they worked there their whole life. And this is, you know, this is their income. This is their retirement plan. You know, uh, now that all the the pension plans for the company sponsors are getting snapped up because the public markets decided, you know, the executives say, well, screw these guys. Why would we give them money when we could just make it a, you know, and, and there's problems there that are too extensive to really dive into. Oh my gosh. The distribution of custody over pension accounts is, is just disgusting. And that, that is a whole other topic indeed. Yeah. Uh, so, so when COVID hit, they had all these retirees and they only had mailing addresses for them. So they send them all these paper checks. And the problem is postal services ground to a halt and there were hundreds of these dividend checks mailed to the investors that just got lost in all in all the chaos and investors around the world were living it and they all had the same question it's a question that investors today ask far too often of our clearing and settlement system for american securities transactions where's my payment and so Joe and his team's response was actually to put a stop order, cancel all the outstanding checks. After weeks, they deemed them lost in the post, and they let everyone know. And Vivian Chives, over the next few days, their investor relations team, all quarantined, right? Uh, they were tirelessly. Uh, Joe's home, in particular became a center point of everybody's operations and they had the everyone drove to his house and manually printed all these new checks these new statements these new they gotta address all the new letters and and and, and, and company executives because there was so much they personally drove dividend check these bundles of envelopes to the post office knowing full well that it could take it could take weeks for them to be delivered and they could get laws, and they double the checks so they could have the first one bounce, and the investors wouldn't get it. And ah, Jesus, 
And I'll leave you with this, and you can kind of extrapolate the impact of this based off, based off this, this, this dialogue. But basically, within a week of this fiasco, Duke Energy lost, the market cap of the company plummeted $6 billion. Jeez. Well, I mean, I'd be curious to think how they would even begin to know who to write many of these checks out to. Cause I'm sure, uh, outside of the, I mean, yeah, a lot of legacy dividend holders and employees, you're going to have their most recent address, but, uh, any more recent interest in the company you know, is going to have, that are going to have to go through broker systems, try to, uh, wrangle them to resend payment. A uh, lot of introduced difficulty and it makes sense to think that it would be with expense. I mean, the depth of, uh, of information has been really incredible to, uh, to hear from you, John, but I, I think what, what you might need is another gallon and a half of water. I'm completely what do you think? with you. I got nothing to do now but walk over to the bathroom. <laughs> well, it, it's been really, uh, really terrific. Uh, so thanks so much for, again, for taking the time. And, um, if you want to share, you know, before we, before we wrap it here, um, where folks can find you, where they might, uh, where maybe they should go. I did post the a link to the block transfer blog and some of your online resources in the, um, Twitter nest. They'll be in the show notes, but is there anywhere else in specific? folks should go or any last things you want to leave people with yeah i mean as i mentioned the best place is really wootenwealth.com and i noticed in the notes you had kind of like an amazon canadian link to my book and and just want to clarify the best resource there is going to be nine to noon secrets.com oh good to know there we go. If you want to uh, check out uh, John's book or and support him directly in that way, yes, certainly a direct link is preferable.